Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. I know a lot of you who listen to the Global Medical Device Podcast are in the midst of raising some sort of funds for a device that you're trying to bring to market. And there are a lot of, of course, trials and challenges and tribulations in the effort to raise fundraising. And one of the biggest challenges or obstacles in that is that regulatory impact. You know, how does it play into the, the big picture of your ability to successfully raise funds? I mean, what certain milestones do you need to have completed? Do you need to to do a 510k in order to get additional sources of funding. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I talk a little bit about some of the things and strategies and tips that you should consider in your efforts to raise funds for your medical device. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. You know, I'm really excited about this particular episode. It's it's something that I have had a lot of thoughts about for a long time, uh, but honestly, I haven't haven't really spent much time, uh, you know, with a podcast or any other content on exploring this in. I'm excited today because I have Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences, and when I um, kind of pitched this idea to him recently, he was equally excited. So, Mike, first of all, welcome to uh, the Global Medical Device Podcast. Well, thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. All right. So let me hit you with a question, and then I think you'll, uh, once I hit you with this question, you'll recall <laughs> the topic that uh, uh, you and I lo- loosely chatted about uh, recently. But and here's the question. If I'm a company, um, maybe specifically a startup or a company that's in the, the throes of raising funds to further my medical device technology, what information should I have when I'm seeking that funding? So uh, I'll, I'll start with kind of that open-ended question and, and get your initial thoughts on that. Well, that's a great question, John, and a terrific uh, place to start out this discussion. Here's a quick statistic to just share with your audience. And that is here in the United States, 80% of medical device companies have 50 or fewer employees. I'll say that one more time. 80% of device companies have 50 or fewer employees. So this industry um, is, is fraught with very, very small companies and indeed startups who are looking to raise uh, money either for the first time or raise money for, uh, you know, for future projects from friends and family, from angels, from VCs, from SBIRs, from a number of different sources, uh, potential uh, corporate investments. And like you, John, I work with companies in all of these different places. And one of the first things that they usually do when they come to me is they want me to put together what I call a a regulatory strategy executive summary. And it's not a full-blown regulatory strategy. It's a, a summary of all of the different options they have and the advantages and disadvantages in order to get their product onto the market. And the reason why they want to do this, John, is because they want to take that information and usually boil it down to one or two PowerPoint slides that they can put into their investor package so that when they get to their uh, angel or VC or whoever it is that they're going to be talking to for money, there's really two things that they want to demonstrate. The first is that they know 
what they're doing. In other words, they know what all their different options are. Not just the vanilla flavored ones, but all of the different options. And that, quite frankly, is the easy part. The second part that they need to demonstrate is that they, meaning the, the team, uh, they have the knowledge and the experience to roll with the punches. Because as you know, John, the regulatory world is a, is a very fluid place. It's constantly changing. And just as a quick example, there are many medical devices that have gotten onto the market here in the United States in the past under the, the 510K, say 10 years ago or even five years ago. But if the same device with the same submission came to the FDA today, it might not get through. And so the question is, why? Has the regulation changed? Well, no, in my opinion, the 510K regulation changed. The, sorry, the 510K regulation has really not changed since it was created in 1976. But what has changed is the level of scrutiny or, or, or uh, uh, criticism that the FDA applies to those certain parts of the submission. And that's a little beyond the scope of this discussion to get into. But those are two things that uh, potential um, uh, entrepreneurs or, or companies looking to raise money, those are really things I think that are very important to demonstrate to potential investors before, they're, before they sit down and start to and sign the check. Yeah, those are really good points. And, and I, um, you know, it is surprising, but folks, uh, it really, if you're 50 employees or less, you're in the majority when it comes to the medical device industry. And I think that blows a lot of people's minds that, you know, cause we think of the big names a lot when we think of the medical device industry, but, but, you know, the, the startup, the, the smaller entity is, is definitely the majority in this space. And, and, um, to Mike's point, a lot of, a lot of companies are in this, you kind of the throes of fundraising at, at, at some level, you know, whether it's bringing your first product to market or you've got additional devices that you're exploring or you're looking for some bridge funding and that sort of thing. And, you know, my first exposure, I mean, I, I guess let me give you a, a kind of a short timeline of my history, over 20 year history in the medical device industry. I, I first started working for one of these larger medical device companies, one of the the, the minority, if you will, from the industry. And I really didn't have any exposure to the startup world in the medical device space until many years later. And once I got exposed to that, it was fascinating to me and fascinating because this regulatory strategy is, um, is really foundational uh, to the, the company's success. I mean, you, you hit on a couple of things. They have to demonstrate, of course, they know what they do, they're doing. Uh, they have to try to demonstrate some sort of, quote, certainty as far as getting the product to market. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in a moment. Uh, but then also making sure that they got the right team. And and this is one of those things that's very challenging because, you know, Mike, what does every investor want to do? Every investor, I think, John, wants to do two things. They want to, first of all, make money. Yeah. But second of all, they want to minimize their risk right. in every sense of the word. So those are a couple of things that I, I think investors want to do. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. So when you talk about medical device industry, uh, you know, <laughs> making money, ho hopefully there's a, you know, some altruism that plays into the, the decision as well, being able to help save lives or improve lives. But, you know, getting that product to market is, is a time consuming thing. You know, uh, the, uh, an average device could easily take multiple years before it gets to the market. Uh, so, you know, the making money part is, is, is challenging because, you know, now it's lengthened. So that's important. And then, you know, de-risk uh, or, you know, some, some path of certainty is also challenging because to Mike's earlier point, 
we're dealing uh, in the medical device industry, we're dealing with regulatory agencies, groups like the FDA, where you know there there isn't certainty per se. And and so I think you know in, when I first got exposed to this uh, about a dozen or so years ago, it became fascinating because there are a lot of different regulatory events uh, that that I saw as kind of the key uh, milestones uh, and, and times when companies would be able to successfully raise funds. So I don't know if you've seen the same thing in your world. I have, John. And I would add one other thing that I almost always include as part of that regulatory strategy executive summary. Um, and this goes along the lines with do you risk? Um, as you and I have talked about many times in the past, John, the vast majority of submissions to the FDA, 510Ks, de novos, PMAs, and so on, the vast majority of them are rejected first time out of the box when they're submitted to the FDA. So another thing that I uh, include, and you can probably guess what this is going to be, John, is a pre-sub, because it's amazing to me how many... Um, companies will go to a potential investor. And I spend some of my time working as a consultant for angel and VC groups, helping them do regulatory due diligence. So I see this from both sides. They'll come in and they'll say that our device is 510K class two, and we're going to do a 510K and it's going to get done in you know X number of months and so on. But that's a huge assumption, a huge assumption. So I encourage a lot of companies, virtually all the companies that I work with, especially at the very early stage, to put a, a line item in their budget for time and for money to prepare for the pre-sub. Because, you you know, the, the, the folks in the company, we can have a discussion uh, from now until the sun burns out in terms of how we're going to bring our device through the FDA. But until we take it to the FDA, it's purely hypothetical. And so I would rather be in a position to say to a potential investor, that we're also planning on taking this to the FDA as a pre-sub to present it to them to make sure that we're all on the same page, we're all pulling in the same direction. And then after the pre-sub, John, I use that uh, that pre-sub meeting as a huge advantage when I go to talk to investors because now we can say we've already had a discussion with the FDA and yes, although things can change, Here's what we've agreed upon. We've got to do uh, A, B, and C. Each each thing is going to take this amount of time and cost this amount of money. So at least in my view, John, that adds tremendous credibility to the discussion with any either new or uh, existing investor. Now, it's a really good point. And, you know, the, the pre-sub, as you and I have talked about a few times in the past, you know, is a, I'll say, relatively newer program at the FDA. And I like the strategy there because... Well, let me um, go back in time a bit. So about uh, when I first got exposed to uh, medical device startups about, like I said, about 12 or so years ago, the classic, the classic uh, regulatory event that was used as, you know, the milestone for a funding opportunity was a 510K submission. And that confused me because... You know, to, to Mike's earlier point, just because you submit a 510K to FDA, there's not certainty there. In fact, uh, to, to a later point Mike made, the vast majority of 510Ks, I think it's like three out of four 510Ks get rejected the first time. So how in the world, this blew my mind, how in the world could a startup company use a 510K submission as, as an event 
that was meaningful when one out of four of those is going to be successful. You know, from an investor point of view, that that is not certainty. That is not um, eliminating or reducing risk. But yet it was historically, it's always been the classic regulatory event for raising money. And and that never made much sense to me. Well, John, it's a very valid point, and I agree with you. But on the other hand, we have to be a little bit careful that we don't overgeneralize investors. There's a lot of different types of investors. So, for example, the types of investors that you're describing, those that would invest in a company after a 510K has been cleared or a de novo granted or a PMA approved, those are very risk-averse investors. Those are the investors, typically you're, you're talking about a large medical device company, for example, that's looking at acquiring your technology. It's already pretty much done, and they're just going to add it to their portfolio with their other products. There are other types of investors, for example, who are willing to get in much, much earlier in the game, you know, to start to invest at the point of a prototype or perhaps even before there's a prototype. And those types of investors obviously understand that the 510K or whatever kind of a submission that you're going to be doing to the FDA, that's still pretty pretty far down the road. So, again, I think we have to be a little bit careful that we don't um, use the word investor in a, uh, you know, in a too ubiquitous of a fashion. No, that's a good point. You know, it really is a good point. You know, and I guess what I've seen in, this, uh, in my time in this industry, that the, um, um, I guess the overall medical device industry investor confidence has is, is kind of been up and down, up and down. Uh, you know, and, and I guess I'm curious if, if you have your your finger on the pulse of of what the investment um, um, situation is like today in the medical device industry, but you know there have been times where where there's been a lot of uh, dollars that are going into startups, and I really love the idea of the pre-submission. I mean, this is folks' number one uh, suggestion. If you know, or maybe there's a few here, but you know, developing that regulatory strategy is is key. But also, you know, getting to a point where you've you've already been in front of the FDA with a pre-submission. It doesn't, I mean, there are levels to this, of course, depending on what it is that you're doing, but you could get to a pre-submission discussion with FDA for a relatively reasonable amount of funding. You, you might need to get some friends and family money. You might need to get a little bit of seed capital, but if you believe in the technology that you're doing and you, and you can show and demonstrate that that it has um, merit in the marketplace and you've got the right team together, there's no reason why you should not prepare that, that pre-submission and have that discussion with the FDA. It's only going to help build your case as you need additional rounds of funding and, and additional milestones that you and your team are going to achieve. Well, once again, John, I could not agree with you more. Uh, to dig into that uh, just a tiny bit further, um, I've had several situations now where we've gone to the FDA uh, with a pre-sub so early in the process, we literally have a prototype, or in some cases, we do not even have a prototype yet. So the question becomes, why would a company want to do this so early in the game? I've done this a number of times. The answer is very simple. They don't really care about getting FDA's agreement on regulatory strategy or testing methodology or whether or not clinical data is important as we would in a traditional pre-sub. That's not their primary motivation. 
their primary motivation is, as I said earlier, to establish credibility with potential investors, to be able to go to a potential investor and say, look, we've already had a meeting with the FDA, and yes, things can change, but here's what we agree on. Now, I'll be honest, John, not all potential investors put value on that, but many of them do. So for those in the audience that are looking to raise money from potential investors, this is a strategy that I think they should uh, think about. And to the point of cost, uh, at least for the moment, John, as you know, there's there's no user fee for the pre-sub process, but give Congress a little bit of time. I think they're missing a huge <laughs> opportunity here to make money. So in terms of the cost out of pocket to the FDA, a pre-sub is free. That said, obviously, it does take time and money to prepare for the, the pre-sub. Um, but I look at it as cheap insurance. I look at it as, uh, as really minimizing uh, the, the, the probability of problems and delays and setbacks in the future. No, that's a really good point. Now, Mike, I'm going to share one of my pet peeves, and, and I'll explain why it's a pet peeve. But I, I hear this uh, – oftentimes, I hear this this uh, phrase, first and and human uh, as as a meaningful event or milestone uh, from a and primarily I hear a great deal from startups and I hear it as you know sort of a trigger event for the ability to raise additional funds and I'll be honest sometimes that irks me and let me explain why it irks me it irks me because uh, a lot of these companies that are touting this first and human path. What I've observed, what I've seen, uh, what I've uh, learned from a lot of these companies, in my opinion, they're very reckless. And what I mean by that is uh, they haven't done uh, prudent engineering. You know, they haven't focused any on design controls uh, and risk uh, of that particular product or technology that they're developing. Uh, they haven't, you know, done their due diligence on the technology. It's like a race to try to get into human studies. And they're going, these, these companies are going all over the world, you know, India, Ukraine, or, you know, all these different places where there is a more lax regulatory environment. And that, that just drives me crazy. Uh, so I don't know if you have any opinions on that. Well, of course, John, I do. You, you know I do. Uh, listen, I'm not even going to touch on um, the phrase prudent engineering. And by the way, thank you for reminding me of, of my phrase that, uh, that I usually use when I talk about design controls. Um, obviously, a company and the people in it have a responsibility to do prudent engineering. That, to me, goes without saying. The question that you're raising is uh, the necessity for clinical data, for human data, and first and man trials and so on. This is another area that I work a lot in. Um, but once again, we have to be careful that we don't overgeneralize. Let's remember that the vast majority of medical devices out there, certainly the bulk of the 510K products, do not require clinical data, uh, at least to get them through the FDA. Now, another thing a lot of people don't realize is that there's a litany of reasons why a company might need clinical data or need to do a clinical trial. FDA is only one of them. Um, I've been involved with several devices where we were 100% confident that we could get the product onto the market that is through the FDA without any clinical data. But we also knew that there was not a snowball's chance of being aware that we would get it onto the market without any clinical data uh, and get reimbursement from CMS for it. Or we would we knew that physicians wouldn't need it. This is a problem of clinical. Uh, sorry, physicians wouldn't use it. This is a problem with clinical adop adoption. 
without any clinical data. So if you're going to have a discussion about the necessity for clinical data, the first question you have to ask is, why are you collecting that data? But again, in terms of investors, I think, um, you know, clearly to, uh, to be able to demonstrate to early investors that you have a strategy to support whether or not your device needs clinical data, and if you do, why? Is it for behavior reasons? Is it for CMS or health economic reasons? Is it for clinical adoptions reasons? Is it for something else? But, you know, usually the, the money for that is going to come much, much, much later because, uh, you know, it might be uh, a, a pretty big chunk of change that you're looking for to do a clinical trial, determining, the, 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 um, you know, depending on the time and the, and the number of patients and so on. And one last thing, now that I think about it, John, I, I would encourage your, your audience to consider is possibly to, to try to sync or overlap your, your clinical data requirements with your human factor requirements, because in more and more medical device applications, there's really no difference between a, cl a clinical trial and a human factor uh, a study. So you really have to take a, a holistic approach, and you really have to, to look at, you know, get all of your ducks in a row um, and have a well-thought-out plan, just like you would have a well-thought-out plan to go to the FDA with a pre-sub. You have to have a well-thought-out plan to go to a potential investor before they're going to be willing to sign the check. Excellent, excellent points. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking with Mike Drews, president of Vascular Sciences, and, and today Mike and I are diving into uh, some topics around uh, when companies might be able to, to uh, seek investment funding and, and providing some tips and, and pointers on things that you should do. And, you know, certainly we've touched on things like the importance of a pre-submission and, and certainly a regulatory strategy and how, you know, if you're pursuing first in human studies, that that should be a holistic approach. It should align with, you know, the topic of human factors and how you plan to address that as well as things like reimbursement, but it should all be a holistic plan and approach and it should be very purposeful as you go along. Now, Mike, one thing that, you know, we pride ourselves at Greenlight Guru is that we've built this EQMS software platform and we have specific workflows that are designed for managing and maintaining design controls and risk management. And the reason I, I want to bring that up is we, um, we have a, a customer of ours. Actually, this, this gentleman has, he is an investor. He has actually purchased Greenlight Guru for three companies that he works with um, uh, over the, the years. And he, first time I met this guy, he's, he's quite the character. His name's Ronnie Bracken. Uh, he used to work in um, at CR Bard, and he used to work in their mergers and acquisitions area uh, several years ago. And he shared this story uh, that they would go in and look at startups uh, who were trying to, you know, get their product to market or get acquired or whatever the exit strategy would be for, for the company. And they would evaluate these technologies. And one of the things that he would say, when, they, when you go and look at a company and they didn't have proper design control documentation, they didn't have proper risk management files, they hadn't done their prudent engineering, they didn't have solid regulatory strategies, Sometimes that was that was uh, an exciting opportunity from from his M and A position because they were able to go in and basically reduce the valuation of that company because uh, now CR Bard and their and their M and A activities was going to be 
basically not only acquiring the technology, but the risk along with that. And he used to talk about giving companies a $20 million haircut on their valuation because they hadn't done uh, proper design controls and risk management. So folks, the reason I bring this up is as you're, you're building your case at every step along the way, you have to consider that you know, these things like uh, design and development, design controls, design history file, risk management file, they are prudent engineering and they will improve the value of the thing that you're doing. So don't forget about those things. Well, John, I agree with you completely. Obviously, you're preaching to the choir, but let me kind of turn this around and ask you a question. So thus far, we've talked we've talked primarily from a regulatory perspective what the advantages are of um, you know considering your regulatory strategy and a pre-sub and so on before going on to uh, uh, to investors. But what about from a quality perspective? One of the questions that I get from a lot of my customers, John, and I'm sure you do as well, is how early in the development process should we start thinking about all of those quality issues that you just mentioned, all of that documentation. Um, now, let me be honest, in an ideal world, it would be very, very simple to just simply say, well, we should begin with all of those things from the very beginning, you know, from the very initial uh, stages of product development. We should have a robust and fully developed quality system in place. But at least in my experience, John, um, that's not a very pragmatic solution because when a company has limited resources, you literally have to choose what to uh, put your money into to be able to, to grow the company, whether it's developing a prototype, whether it's going to the FDA and so on. So what would be your thoughts? What would be your best advice on how to incorporate those very important quality design controls, documentation kind of issues, keeping in mind that, uh, you know, maybe the company doesn't have a lot of resources uh, at the very beginning to do that? Mike, I'm so glad you asked that question because um, those those of you listening who uh, know anything about my passion around quality management systems, you'll appreciate, hopefully you'll appreciate my opinion uh, on this and my experience on this. And, and I, Mike, I actually like in this topic of when do you build a QMS and how do you build a QMS? I actually like in it, there's a lot of parallels to funding of a company. And, and uh, I use an, a, a phrase bootstrap your quality management system. And bootstrap is oftentimes a term that's used when we are raising funds for a new technology. And what I mean by that is build it, as you go, build it as you need it. And if you're uh, you know, a startup that's just developing a device, you don't need to focus on a few full QMS. And if you're talking to a consultant or somebody that says you need to have the entire QMS in place to comply with FDA 820 and ISO 1345 and so on and so forth, my opinion is that they're misleading you a bit. And here's what I mean by that. When you're in design and development, there's about a handful elements of the quality management system uh, regulations that you need to be focused on. I mean, you're in design and development. So, you know, design control you know, absolutely is something that you need to address. You risk is, is part and parcel with design and development these days. So have process in place that addresses ISO 14971. Uh, and it is a holistic approach from a risk management standpoint. There's a good chance that you will be generating documents and records. Absolutely, you will be generating documents and records. So make sure you have a process that describes and defines your document management processes. And then a common thing for, for many companies these days, you know, we use this term virtual company. And, and that 
implies that you're probably going to be outsourcing uh, different things, whether that be design services or testing services or, or pilot production and manufacturing or, or whatever the case may be, you're going to be outsourcing to suppliers. So make sure you have a supplier management process in place. So design control, risk, document management, supplier management. And in my opinion, that's probably the all you need from a quality management system for up until the time that uh, you're preparing for clinicals uh, and maybe even a little bit beyond that. So, you know, as you prepare for some of these more advanced design and development activities like building uh, uh, clinical units or you know, getting into more of a production setting, then you'll build additional parts and pieces of your quality management system as you go. But build it as you go. That's, that's my philosophy. Make sure that your QMS is bootstrapped and right-sized based on the stage of where you are. Well, I love that advice, John. Build as you go or bootstrapping or however you want to describe it. You know, Shakespeare said a rose by another name still smells as sweet. So I agree with you. This is a strategy that I've used many, many times in the past myself. As a matter of fact, to take what you said uh, just a half a step further, John, uh, oftentimes I do get invited by entrepreneurs and small startup companies to help them develop their presentation for their investors or in some cases actually participate in the presentation and the discussion itself. And when it comes to the quality issue, I will say, look, we all understand that quality is important, but as John said, I mean, he's the guru when it comes to quality, hence the name of the company. Uh, as John said, we don't have the resources to implement a full-blown, robust quality system right now. As a matter of fact, we don't have a product right now, so it's a little bit like putting in the cart in front of the horse, but we do think that's very important. We do think that we need to be able to do all of those things, and we do think there are things that we can do right now in order to ease the transition as our company grows when we have to put those systems in place, or if our company gets acquired by one of the big guys, and then we have to move you know, our system, our documentation into, uh, into the large company's QMS. So what I like to do, John, and this is just sort of a different, different spin on what you just said, is I'll triage the elements of the quality system. We'll start out with the most important ones in order to be able to make that transition uh, further down the road much easier. And uh, again, this is demonstrating to the investors that just like when I try to demonstrate this to the FDA, that we know what we're doing, that we know what all of the steps are involved, that we know what all of our options are, and we have evaluated our options, and given where we are right now in our product development process, given where we are right now in the in the, um, in the life cycle of the company, given where we are right now in terms of the resources that we have, these are the things that we're focusing on now. And then these other things we will focus on later as we get further down the road. That's my approach to uh, the quality side, very similar to the regulatory side. Yeah, it's, it's just good advice, folks. I mean, you know, be focused on what it is that you're trying to do. And, you know, of course, have enough foresight to, to know what's coming and, you know, what's coming down the road. But you've got a finite amount of time. You've got a finite amount of resources. You've got a finite amount of capital. Uh, you know, be capital efficient. You know, make sure that you're focused on the right things at the right time. Very, very important. Hard to do, but very important to do. So, Mike, as we wrap up uh, this discussion today, is there, um, I guess, uh, uh, one big tip that that uh, you want to leave folks with or, or a horror story or, or some sort of um, 
<laughs> some sort of tidbit that, that you'd like to share as we wrap up today's conversation? Well, rather than a horror story, John, let me try to live, leave on a positive note. Um, so here's my biggest piece of advice. Just like when I have discussions with companies prior to going to the FDA, I ask them, what would it take for you as an individual to put your um, stamp of uh, endorsement, if you will, on your device to uh, say that my device is okay to use in a family member and a friend and perhaps even myself or in my case, my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson? I would apply the same logic to an investor. Put yourself in the investor's shoes. So what would you as an investor need to see in terms of the technology as well as the team in order to convince you to sit down and write the check? If you've put together what you think is a, is a strong argument as to why your technology is beneficial, why your team has the experience to do what you're saying that they will do, uh, uh, and you can walk in there with confidence, I think you're in good shape. So that would be my, my you know, it's, it's Sounds very simple. Sounds very basic. And in fact, it really is. But at least in my experience, John, it's amazing to me how many people don't do that. So that would be my uh, my final piece of advice to leave our audience today. Well, that's a good piece of advice. And, and Mike, I want to thank you so much uh, once again for participating in this conversation on the Global Medical Device Podcast. And, and folks, as I mentioned earlier, as you're exploring uh, this path, this journey, if you will, and bringing your products to market, whether you're a startup or an established company who's already been through this, I would encourage you to, to focus on true quality. And I don't mean that in a, in a classic interpretation of quality, like quality systems, but you have to think about each of us as a medical device professional, we do have a responsibility. We are developing medical devices that are going to save and improve the quality of life. And, you know, there's, there, think about the, the big Q quality, the things that we need to be doing at, at various stages during the design, development, and manufacturing and sale of our products, you know, keep focused on that. You know, make sure that you've, you're, you're constantly evolving your approach and your systems to make sense. You know, d don't just focus on the compliance checkbox, but make sure that the things that you're doing are prudent and appropriate and, and applicable to, to the stage of where you are. And if you want to learn a little bit more about how Greenlight Guru is changing and improving the focus of quality within medical device companies in over 35 countries and 500 cities around the world. I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about our exciting, award-winning EQMS software platform designed specifically and exclusively for the medical device industry. So you all have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear.